Okay, we're continuing together our study in the subject of the biblical covenants. And we said that a covenant is uh, a gracious oath-sworn promise between uh, that that God makes uh, between himself and the people with whom he's making a covenant, uh, and that these covenants define the relationship between God and the covenant community with whom he makes the covenant. And we said there were five major covenants in the Bible, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the old covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And we've looked at the Noahic covenant. We have looked at um, the Abrahamic covenant. We uh, more recently have been looking at the old covenant. And we saw that the old covenant was, uh, of all the covenants, uh, a temporary covenant. The other four are permanent covenants, but the old covenant was a temporary covenant. It was brought in alongside the Abrahamic covenant. It ran alongside it until Jesus came and the new covenant was instituted. The old covenant was done away with. And so we talked about what parts of the old covenant were done away with and what parts were not. And we said that the old covenant was a covenant of law. God said to Israel, that if you will uh, keep my words and keep my covenant, keep my commandments, uh, then you will be uh, a special people unto me and you'll be a holy nation and you'll be a kingdom of priests and uh, you'll be a special people to me above all other nations. And we saw that in uh, Genesis, strike that in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And uh, the problem is, is that Israel, of course, didn't keep the law of God. They didn't keep the terms of the old covenant. And so since it was a bilateral covenant, God kept uh, his part and Israel was to keep her part. And Israel didn't keep her part. That covenant was eventually abrogated and done away with. So um, the purpose of the covenant was to restrain sin uh, until Messiah should come and keep Israel um, a unique and separate nation from the nations around them. Uh, the purpose also was to convey to them blessings and the will of God for their lives, uh, to convey to them the promise of the coming Messiah and a whole host of other blessings that came through that covenant. So we've been talking about what passed away and what remained. And we said that the old covenant uh, is primarily a covenant of law, you know, do these things and I'll bless you. Don't do these things and I'll curse you um, or fail to do these things and I'll curse you. And so uh, we said that that law was broken up into three categories. There was the ceremonial law, which dealt with uh, the religious life of Israel, all of her um, uh, temple worship, the priestly acts, uh, the animal sacrifices, the feast days, the fast days, the dietary restrictions. All of those things were the ceremonial law. And then there was the civil law that dealt with the national life of the country and had to do with kings and how they functioned, cities of refuge and um, criminal penalties for various infractions and uh, those types of things. And then there was the moral law of God, which was the Ten Commandments that talked about our personal ethical behavior and what we should and shouldn't do in the way in which we treated God and in the way in which we treated our fellow man. So we said that the ceremonial law passed away when the old covenant passed away, and the civil law passed away when the old covenant passed away, but the moral law, namely the Ten Commandments, remained, 
and are still in force, all 10 of them, as well as the promises that God made to Israel now apply to new covenant Israel, which we are. Uh, it says in Galatians 3 and verse 29, that if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so Israel now is made up of those who are born of Jesus. That is, those who are born again. So Abraham had Christ through a series of descendants, and Christ has us. Okay? And so we're born uh, into uh, the nation of Israel uh, by virtue of the new birth as opposed to physical birth. So now it says, To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born um, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So now we're born not physically, not of blood, but we're born spiritually, we're born of Christ. So the church now is the new Israel. Israel was um, uh, pruned of her unbelieving members, Romans 11. She was given a new covenant. At the Last Supper, Jesus instituted the new covenant to replace the old covenant, and the Gentiles, of course, were engrafted in. So Israel never ceased to exist. She simply was pruned reconstituted and had the Gentiles grafted into her. And so um, Abraham, of course, had a physical seed and he had a spiritual seed. Um, and that spiritual seed continues on those who share the faith of Abraham. So now we're looking at this old covenant and we say, well, the ceremonial law has passed away. The civil law has passed away. What good are they? And what good are they to us now that we as New Covenant believers are living and, and reading our Bibles? And so what we have seen is that the value of the ceremonial law and the civil law to the New Covenant believer is that these things are models, pictures, foreshadowings of the redemptive work that Jesus was going to accomplish when he came. And we talked about the fact that oftentimes when an architect uh, conceives a building, uh, he will make a model of the building that he has designed and he'll show it to the owner and he'll say, this is what I've designed and the owner will look at it and he'll say, yeah, that's what I want to build. And then they'll actually build the real thing. And uh, the model is there to look at and to see in that model uh, a foreshadowing, an illustration of what um, the building ultimately is going to uh, look like. So what we've been doing then is we've been seeing um, how that the uh, ceremonial law in this chapter is a picture of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so we have seen that the Old Testament foreshadows Christ as our mediator in the person of Moses. And we saw how that under the Old Covenant, Moses uh, took the words of the people to God and spoke them to God. And then he took the words of God and he brought them back to the people and he spoke them to the people. And God made 
the old covenant with Israel and Moses was the mediator between Israel and God in the mediation of this covenant and in the conveying of the communication regarding that covenant uh, back and forth between them. And so, of course, uh, Moses was an imperfect and an incomplete um, picture of the final mediator who is the Lord Jesus, because while Moses was fully man and could fully represent man to God, he wasn't fully God and so therefore couldn't fully represent God to man. Whereas the Lord Jesus is both fully God and fully man, God and man in one person, and thus he's able to be that perfect mediator that Moses only foreshadowed. And so through the mediatory role of Moses, the Old Covenant introduces a vital concept regarding our fellowship with God. It shows us that we need someone between us and God who, like Moses, communicates God's message to us and who would at the same time be able to represent us to God. And so here we see the value of studying the ceremonial law. We learn about the mediatorial work of Christ. Now, today we want to talk about further things we can learn from the study of the ceremonial law that has, in fact, passed away. And that is we can learn about Christ as our sacrifice. We can also learn about Christ as our priest. We can also learn about Christ as our prophet. And that's what consumes the remainder of the chapter that we have been studying together. And so when we talk about the Lord Jesus being a mediator between us and God, as God, of course, he's perfectly suited to plead God's message and case to us. But he really has nothing as a mediator to plead on our behalf to God simply because we're sinful. We are under the wrath of God. We have no righteousness to stand before God. And as a result, we are rejected by God. And our mediator can't hardly commend us to God and reconcile us with God and bring us together with God if he hasn't got some kind of an argument, if he hasn't got some kind of a means to remove the offense that exists between us and God. And thus the need for our mediator also to have a sacrifice to offer in atonement for our sins. And so what we have here is um, the Lord Jesus as a mediator having an argument or a case to bring forth in order to plead and advocate on our behalf. And by his atoning work, uh, he makes that case and is able to present it to God so that God can accept the terms of the mediation and be reconciled to the opposing party, which is us. Now, if Christ had just appeared on the scene without any previous old covenant um, example, illustration, and practice leading up to that, the idea of him dying on the cross in our place to commend us to God and to provide a substitutionary atonement for our sins would be incomprehensible to us. And what the animal sacrifices did is they prepared us to understand the perfect final sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ offered. Now, when we look at the old covenant, 
One of the things that we see is that there was this constant drumbeat of emphasis that if you're going to bring God an animal sacrifice, the animal has to be without spot and without blemish. It has to be a perfect sacrifice. And of course, the perfection that was demanded of the old covenant animal sacrifices foreshadowed the moral perfection and sinlessness that the Lord Jesus had to have if he was going to be the perfect and if he was going to be the final sacrifice. Now, turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chap- pardon me, to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we see this idea of the perfection of the sacrifice being applied, uh, uh, of the old covenant being applied to the Lord Jesus under the new covenant. Notice 1 Peter 1 and verse 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. He says in 1 Peter 1, 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed, that is, set free by the payment of a ransom, you were not redeemed, you were not set free by the payment of a ransom with corruptible things like silver and gold. Okay, In other words, your salvation wasn't purchased with money. You were not redeemed from the vain conversation or the vain manner of life received by tradition from your fathers. But, now here it is, you were redeemed with, notice, the precious blood of Christ, here it is, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now the idea of an unblemished, unspotted lamb was something that was very prominent under the Old Covenant and in the minds of the people of God as being absolutely essential for a sacrifice to be acceptable to God. You couldn't bring an animal sacrifice that was disfigured uh, because it wasn't perfect. And if it wasn't perfect, then it wasn't going to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Thus foreshadowing that our Lord Jesus would be without any moral blemish and without any moral spot. That is, he would be sinless, he would be perfect, and thus he could take on our sins and our imperfections and die for them because he had no sins or imperfections of his own for which he needed to die. So what's the value of studying The ceremonial law, well, you see, okay, these animal sacrifices are a picture of the nature of Christ's sacrifice. And we see the New Testament tying together these Old Testament ceremonial concepts with the work of Jesus. And even though those ceremonies have passed away, they're still valid illustrations of the the, the new covenant fulfillment of them. And so Peter talks about the unblemished, unspotted lamb. And he says, that illustrates Jesus and his perfect uh, morality, his sinless person, and thus his suitability to be a sin offering in our place. All right. Then another thing we see from these old covenant sacrifices is not only that there needed to be a perfect sacrifice, but there needed to be a blood sacrifice in order for forgiveness to be achieved. Now, there were other sacrifices that were offered besides blood sacrifices. There were meal offerings and drink offerings, but these were never offered for atonement for sin. It always required the shedding of blood. And so it says in Leviticus 17 and verse 11, 
For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he gave it to us to make an atonement for our souls on the altar. And since the wages of sin is death, and death is required in order to um, uh, pay the penalty to God's law and to God's justice for the sins that we have committed, um, then uh, the substitute has to die in order to experience that just penalty. And so how do we know the substitute is dead? Well, because all the blood's drained out of it. You can live without a lot of things, but you can't live without blood. And they can even keep you alive on machines, but they can't do it without blood. So you can be brain dead, but still be, quote, alive, unquote, as long as there's blood circulating. But you take the blood out, that's it. Uh, There is no life without blood. And so the shedding of the blood absolutely assured and ensured that there would be death on the part of the substitute. And so what we see is um, that uh, in Hebrews 9.22, the book of Hebrews chapter 9, In Hebrews 9 and verse 22, it says, regarding the old covenant, it says, And almost all things are by the law, that is, by the old covenant, by the ceremonial law of the old covenant, cleansed or purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so we come to our memory verse, Hebrews 9 and verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So that's our memory verse that I passed out to you. Okay. So, um, these the, the blood of goats and calves were a picture of ultimately the shedding of the blood of the Son of God as a payment of the just penalty of God's law against our sins and thus being redeemed or set free from the penalties of that law by the setting forth of a suitable ransom to purchase us from um, the claims of that law. So redemption simply means to set free by the payment of a ransom. What are we set free from? The claims of the law against us for justice, namely the wages of sin is death. What is the ransom price? Um, His own blood, because that signified, if you will, or ensured his own death. And so death was what was required. The shedding of the blood ensured the death. And therefore, the shedding of the blood is put in the place of, by way of metonymy for the death itself, uh, ensures that it occurred, and thus the penalty to God's law and God's justice is fully paid. Thus, the claims of the law against us are resolved, and we are set free from those claims forever. And so, what do we learn from the old covenant ceremonial law about the redemptive work of Jesus? Well, he had to be a perfect sacrifice 
and he had to shed his blood in order to obtain redemption on our behalf. The third thing that we learn from the Old Covenant ceremonial law is not only the need for a perfect sacrifice and the need for a blood sacrifice, but the third concept we learn from Old Covenant ceremonial law is the principle of the substitution of an innocent victim in the place of a guilty one. That is, the idea of what we call vicarious atonement. A vicar is one who stands in the place of another as a representative of that person. And so uh, the word vicarious simply means substitutionary. Uh, there are synonyms. If we have a vicarious atonement, we have a substitutionary atonement, we're saying exactly the same thing. Okay? Um, and so the idea of a substitute on behalf of the sinner is something that's very prominent in the Old Covenant uh, sacrificial system. And so what the priest would do is he would take uh, the, the lamb that the person brought and that person would lay their hands on the head of the lamb and his sins that he confessed would be symbolically transferred to the lamb and then the lamb would die in the place of the sinner who should have died but who transferred his sins to the animal sacrifice and thus the sacrifice then bore the guilt and the punishment of those sins and thus died in the place of the one who actually committed him, them. And so we see the concept, uh, once again, under the ceremonial law of the substitution of an innocent victim for a guilty one, thus expiating or cleansing the guilt of the guilty person by imputation of those sins to the innocent person and then the innocent person bearing the penalty for those sins in the place of that guilty person. Now turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says here in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him, that is, God the Father has made God the Son, to be sin for us, or to be sinful in our place, even though God the Son knew no sin, who knew no sin, in order that we, who were sinful, might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what happened is that God the Father caused our sins to be placed on God the Son, and God the Son's righteousness to be placed upon us who had no righteousness. So Jesus got our sins, we got his righteousness, and with the result that there's no guilt clinging to us because it was all transferred to Jesus, and God sees us as having perfectly obeyed his law because all of Jesus' obedience, his righteousness, was transferred to us. So when God looks at us, he sees us as having committed no sins and he sees us as having perfectly obeyed his law. And on that basis, then he declares us to be justified. To be justified simply means to be declared righteous according to a standard of law. 
And so by the standard of the law, we haven't broken it at all because all of our breaking of it is transferred away from us to Jesus. And we perfectly kept it because all of his law keeping is transferred to us. And this is the wonderful doctrine of imputation and substitution. Well, where do we first learn about the idea that our sins can be transferred to, to the innocent victim and that um, we can be delivered from the penalty of sins by transferring them to another? Uh, well, we learn about that in the old covenant sacrificial system. So the point is, is that uh, man commits sin, that sin makes man deserving of death. God prescribes a way for him to escape that death. And the way he prescribes is that he must sacrifice an animal in his place so that the sin and the guilt of the sin are transferred to the animal. And the slaughter of that animal is the means of punishing that sin and what the man deserved, the animal received in his place. Now, that whole concept that was set forth in the Old Covenant ceremonial law is what helps us make sense out of the sacrifice of Christ. When he came and he died on the cross, the people of God went, oh, of course, we fully understand that. We've seen a model of this before. And having seen the model, now when we see the reality, uh, it makes perfect sense because there is a huge correspondence between those things. Now, obviously, the animal had no righteousness to impute back. <laughs> and once again, we see these models are inadequate. We see they're incomplete. But nevertheless, they're very helpful and very useful uh, in terms of helping us understand uh, the new covenant and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Um, what we see in the Bible is that um, his sacrifice, unlike the animal sacrifices, are once for all. So, for example, when we look at things like the Day of Atonement, we look at the Day of Pentecost, uh, we look at the Passover ceremony. All these ceremonial laws point us to Jesus, they point us to his work, and they help us understand it by providing a model of it. Now, it doesn't mean... Like Messianic Christianity says that we need to go back and start practicing that stuff again. Okay? Uh, once we have the reality, we don't need to go back, and indeed it's wrong to go back and reinstitute uh, the model of that reality. But nevertheless, we can study those models, we can look at those models, and we can find in them uh, instruction in helping us understand the reality. So, for example, the Old Covenant Passover. Uh, in which God passed over his people and did not put them to death in Egypt because why? They were covered by the blood. You remember they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the doorposts of the house and, and uh, on the lintel and, and, uh, and uh, the death angel, when he saw the blood, uh, he passed over that house and did not kill the firstborn in that house. And in the same way, when God sees us uh, under the blood of Christ, he passes over us, he does not, uh, put us to death for uh, our sins. And so, of course, the Passover was then transformed formed into the Lord's Supper. And if we don't understand the Passover, we're going to have a hard time understanding the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be celebrating today. Okay? And uh, what Jesus did is he took that Passover ceremony and he transformed it. 
And of course, the animal sacrifice was removed from it. No longer did we kill and roast and eat a lamb uh, because the final sacrifice, which that lamb represented and the blood which he shed is the Lord Jesus. And there's no need for any sacrifice anymore. Um, and uh, he took the bread and he took the wine of the Passover meal and he transformed them in terms of their significance. The bread became symbolic of his body. The wine became symbolic of his shed blood. And um, we are now to celebrate our new covenant Passover ceremony called the Lord's Supper uh, in remembrance of the redemption that Jesus wrought for us. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, strike that, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see how the Old Covenant ceremonial law is once again tied into and provides an explanation for uh, the New Covenant Lord's Supper. Okay, notice 1 Corinthians 5 and verse um, uh, 6. We'll start out at verse 6. He says to these Corinthians, your glorying is not good. They're glorying in the fact they're tolerating sin in their assembly. He says, know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You women who make bread, you put a little bit of yeast in there, pretty soon it spreads through the whole thing, right? He says, purge out therefore the old leaven, that is, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. So leaven here is a picture of sin. He says, you allow a little sin in the congregation, and tolerate it and justify it pretty soon it infects the entire congregation okay and so he's saying cleanse the sin out of the congregation now here it is for even christ our passover is sacrificed for us therefore let us keep the feast that is the lord's supper the new covenant passover not with old leaven that is, not with sin, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven's a picture of sin, and that's why we use unleavened bread when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. A lot of churches nowadays are using leavened bread. Uh, it's a perversion of the symbol. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's like taking the American flag, which is the symbol of America, and sewing some purple stripes across it or something. Uh, you pervert the symbol. And so when, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper with leaven in the bread, you're perverting the whole symbolism of the fact that this was a sinless sacrifice. Leaven's a picture of sin, and that's why we use unleavened bread, because um, it's a symbol of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. So the point is, is that You'd never understand verses 7 and 8 if you didn't understand something about the ceremonial law and the Passover and how that all worked out and how that all um, uh, played out in terms of being a picture of the Lord Jesus and the salvation he's provided us from uh, God's death angel. So this is the reason why it's important for us to study the Old Covenant ceremonial law because there we learn about Jesus as mediator. There we learn about Jesus as sacrifice. And the whole new covenant sacrificial system is described in terms of the old covenant sacrificial system and the model that it provided for us to understand it. So um, 
you know, the question was asked some weeks ago, why was so much of the Bible devoted to the Old Covenant, 38 books of the Old Testament devoted to the Old Covenant, um, when it was just going to pass away? The reason why is because it provides the background and a phenomenally rich um, source of illustration and explanation of uh, the new covenant and the provisions that Jesus has made through it. So as you read the book of Leviticus and you read Exodus and you read about all these ceremonies, don't think, you know, that's all a waste of my time. See Christ and the new covenant and how these things play out in the new covenant. And then the study of the old covenant and its ceremonial law in particular will be very rich and blessed to you. Um, because really, if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't understand the New. And that's why when I run into an unsaved person, and, and I urge them to read the Bible, and they say, well, where should I start reading? You know what I always tell them? Genesis. Read Genesis. Because without Genesis, the New Testament doesn't make any sense. And then after they read Genesis, I tell them, read Romans. And so... Um, that's how, you know, Romans doesn't make a bit of sense if you don't understand the life of Abraham and all that, uh, all that happened in his life. And because the, the whole book of Romans is just shot through with Genesis stories. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the old covenant ceremonial law. Thank you that we're no longer under it, but thank you that we have possession of it in terms of a written record. And that through it, we understand much of the new covenant and how that plays out and how it's to be understood. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us not to despise the ceremonial and the civil law which have passed away, but to recognize that though they're no longer directly applicable to us, yet they contain rich illustrations of that which is directly applicable to us, and that is the saving work of Jesus under the new covenant as our mediator and as our sacrifice and as we shall see as our priest and as our prophet. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see the Bible as a unit and not just whack off the Old Testament and give it a toss as though it's irrelevant. Uh, it's never been more relevant than it is now that it's been completed by the New Testament. Father, thank you for that realization. May our Bibles be uh, more precious to us than they've ever been as a result of this understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.